clerked for Justice Page, came back to Detroit, worked, went, I, I went to law school on what I call the Thurgood Marshall Plan. I was gonna change the world through high impact class action litigation, litigate the next Brown v. Board, right? I was that kid in Robinson desegregating a school district and by golly, we were gonna fix all that. Went to the firm that had the class action portfolio, sat in a windowless office and wondered why I pulled, why I got a headache every day when I pulled in the parking structure. And I'm talking to a, a neural orthopedist or orthopedic surgeon, some some brain eye specialist at some point who's in my eye and he says to me, you know, what's, you know what's wrong with you? And I was like, no, what? You're gonna tell me, like I have a tumor or something. He says, you need a new job. That's Dan Varner, president and CEO of Goodwill Industries of Greater Detroit. This week we'll hear Dan deliver a wheelhouse talk, which is a lecture given to the Cook Leadership Academy Fellows at the Howenstein Center. At Goodwill, Dan Varner leads efforts to support upwards of 900 local businesses in and around Detroit with a reliable workforce. He also helps to empower trainees with skills for workplace success. Before joining Goodwill, Dan served as the CEO of Excellent Schools Detroit, a partnership of city organizations working to improve Detroit's public education system. Dan Varner is, as you'll be able to tell from this talk, if not from my introduction, deeply committed to the people of Detroit and to the city's improvement. He has been instrumental above all in advancing the nonprofit and educational infrastructure of the city. In addition to his work at Goodwill, Varner is the co-founder and former CEO of Think Detroit, a nationally recognized youth development organization. After merging with the Detroit Police Athletic League, Think Detroit became the largest provider of youth development sports programs in the city, serving 13,000 participants a year. In this talk, Dan Varner describes his work with Think Detroit and with Goodwill. He also talks about his time at the University of Michigan, including his work at the law school. I love this talk especially for the way Varner weaves a discussion of his legal work and what he thought was his vocation in the law, with his lifelong commitment to service and his impassioned commitment to Detroit. This talk is about 40 minutes and is worth the listen. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Good afternoon. Uh, we can do a little better than that. Good afternoon, Grand Valley State University. All right. How are we doing today? Good, good. I will be a little conversational in style. I'm not a kind of behind the mic, formal speaker. I'll walk this stage a little bit. So um, hopefully none of that will get too uh, distracting. Um, and I can't wait for the opportunity to actually engage in discussion uh, at the end of all this. So I'm really excited to be here with you today. Um, so thank you to all of you, to President Haas. Uh, thank you for the invitation to Chad and the Howenstein team. Uh, and to all of the faculty and students here at GVSU, it's, uh, a, it's not every day that you get invited to come across the state to talk to folks about your experience. Um, and so it's a pleasure to be able to do so. So thank you. Um, so I was asked to come today and tell you a little bit, well, so to talk about leadership, uh, but really through two lenses. One was through the lens of kind of my life experience, uh, and then uh, to reflect a little bit on that and share kind of lessons about leadership from uh, my life experience and from you know, my, my efforts to lead uh, and the like. Um, and so I'll do that today, and I'll, I, this is a little, I was 
saying before uh, just a few minutes ago that um, it's a little unusual. Like I actually get to tell my life story and I don't usually stand up in front of a room full of folks and tell my life story. So it's a different kind of uh, engagement for me um, and an interesting one uh, in that regard. So hopefully it won't be too boring um, for all of you. It's, you know how it is, like you love talking about yourself. Like I get to talk about my life story, right? But that doesn't mean it's gonna be interesting for any of you. Um, so, I think with that, so the, yeah, I'm gonna break this into kind of two sections. Sorry, I've got some notes over here to make sure I don't miss anything important. One is I'm just gonna try and run through kind of my life to date, fairly quickly, like 10, 15 minutes, but just give you a flavor of some of the stuff that um, I've taken on or been through or what have you. Um, I will highlight a few moments uh, in that story um, and just dive a little bit deeper just to give you a sense of, of what was going on. Um, and then I'm gonna circle back kind of in the second stage to talk a little bit about lessons learned out of all of that. Um, and I'll refer back sometimes to that story and sometimes not. Um, it's just kind of lessons that I've learned um, along the way. So uh, with that, I guess we'll just jump into uh, about me. So um, I tell folks all the time, the, the most, uh, the best thing I've ever done in life uh, is be a dad. I got three amazing kids. Uh, my oldest is a sophomore in college uh, down in Atlanta at Emory University, and then I've got two girls still at home, uh, senior in high school, and I'm a sixth grader. Um, and by far, like, the best leadership lessons I've ever learned have come in attempting to lead them. Uh, so it's always the place that I begin when I talk about leadership. Um, a little bit more about me, so I was born in Detroit, I am a Detroit kid. Uh, back in 1969, which was an amazing year. And the story is, um, my folks wanted to travel. Uh, my dad was, uh, he worked at, at Marathon Petroleum, an oil refinery in southwest Detroit. And uh, he and my mom wanted to travel and see the world and didn't have a ton of money. So my dad applied for jobs at, at refineries overseas and was offered a job at a refinery in Saudi Arabia and another one uh, at a refinery in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So my first memories, as you might imagine, are of paradise, like literally rainforests, beaches, uh, you know, everything that the Virgin Islands have to offer. I uh, was there for a little over six years. Um, and learn to swim there. It'll become uh, important later in the story, but if you grow up uh, on an island like St. Croix, you learn to swim. Uh, and swimming becomes one of your things. Tim Duncan, folks know Tim Duncan, are you guys too young to, yeah. So Tim Duncan, famous NBA basketball player uh, with the San Antonio Spurs, much younger than I am, but grew up on St. Croix and was a swimmer uh, until he became a basketball player. A hurricane kind of ruined the pool uh, and you move to ocean swimming when the pool gets ruined uh, after a hurricane. And ocean swimming's a different thing and some people are freaked out by it and Tim evidently was freaked out by it and became a basketball player instead. And so we all got to be blessed by his basketball prowess. Um, so uh, to St. Croix and then to Robinson. So my mom wanted to come back to the States. She was tired of raising two kids far away from family and we came back to a small farming community in southeastern Illinois called Robinson, Illinois. Uh, there's a marathon plant there. Anybody know with that, familiar with that area of the country? Kind of near Terre Haute, Indiana, a little bit, yeah? Um, so Robinson, Illinois, small farming community, southeastern Illinois, right near the border with Indiana. And at the time that we moved there in the mid-70s, my sister and I were the only, we were the only black family with school-aged children. And so my sister and I desegregated the school district uh, in Crawford County, Illinois. Um, it was 
as you, like, you know, it was all that, right? Um, and other stuff. Uh, and I, like, we could spend an hour talking about that experience, which is not what we'll do. Um, what I will say to you, kind of one really important takeaway, maybe two really important takeaways from that time. Um, one was around uh, the power of teams. So in that community, in that time in our country, there were great youth sports programs for boys. And I was a pretty good athlete, so I played football, I played basketball, I played baseball, I ran track, kind of did everything. And through that, and I swam, um, kind of found teammates who became allies, who became friends. Uh, in that community, in that time and place uh, in our country, there weren't great youth sports programs for girls. This is pre-Title IX, right? Uh, and so my sister did not have the same youth sports experience and, through, and didn't, as a result, have the opportunity to gain teammates through that experience and so lost the opportunity um, to find allies and friends through that vehicle um, and really struggled to find them elsewhere. And so it was a very different experience for me and my sister. It was hard for me, to be sure, much harder for my sister, um, much more lonely uh, and much more isolating for her. Um, so Robinson, the second quick takeaway from that time uh, there is you know, obviously around race uh, and the role that race plays in our country. Uh, there is nothing like being uh, in third grade and um, kind of you know, having it thrown in your face uh, like that, right? So uh, race has been front and center in my life. Uh, and I shouldn't call it front, kind of has provided very rich context for my life um, in everything that I've done uh, ever since. Um, and that probably shows up over the course of the rest of the conversation, so I'll move on. We stayed in Robinson for two and a half years, came back here to Detroit where my dad was from, uh, and his, he and his nine siblings were all here, uh, settled in Southfield, Michigan at the time, which was uh, changing over from um, a majority Jewish community to a majority black community, uh, and went to the University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy, so I'm Jesuit educated. Uh, and then did the University of Michigan for undergrad and law school, go blue. It was a tough weekend last weekend. <laughs> um, and uh, while at the University of Michigan and law school, so I, I was a swimmer through high school and then kind of burned out and decided I didn't want to swim anymore. Um, you're like, why is he telling me about swimming? Freshman year did nothing, gained 15 pounds the way that freshmen do in college who don't do anything, right? Uh, and sophomore year, saw a flyer that was advertising tryouts for the U of M water polo team, which was a club team that was petitioning for varsity status. And a friend of mine said, I'm going to go try out. You should come too. And so I went and tried out um, and made the team and fell in love with this sport of water polo. Uh, and so played water polo for the next four years uh, through my first year in law school. Was the only raisin in the oatmeal, again. Um, and uh, And was the Big Ten most valuable player and Midwestern region most valuable player uh, my first year in law school. So I uh, was a good water polo player as far as Midwestern water polo players go, which is not saying much, <laughs> right? Um, all the great water polo players go out to California. Uh, but fell in love with the game. Um, learned something important there, too. Uh, something that we all learn, uh, and that's that sometimes you lose. Uh, so my senior year, so my third year playing water polo, we're playing Indiana in the Big Ten Championship, and we had crushed Indiana all season long. Like, this was not supposed to be a competitive game. Um, we were supposed to win the Big Ten Championship. Big Tens are at Indiana, so it's their home pool, but we're still supposed to crush them. 
and we are just not able to lose these guys. Uh, and it's a one goal game with a few minutes left and then they tie it up and then they go ahead and we're one goal down and they're like 30 seconds left. Timeout and we design a play and so on and we run the play to perfection except that the guy who shoots uh, hits the post uh, and we lose. And I sat on the edge of that pool and I cried for 20 minutes, right? And there's like nothing you can do. Like there's no, you don't get a do over. Like that's it, game over. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes you just lose. Um, it definitely fueled me. Worked out all off season, came back next year. We won Big Tens in Midwestern region and you know, I won those awards that I mentioned earlier. Um, but sometimes you lose, an important lesson. While at the University of Michigan Law School, um, I uh, had the privilege of leading the Black Law Student Association and we brought a guy in to speak at our annual banquet. His name was Alan Page. Anybody here know Alan Page? Yeah, so the older folks in the room, right? Some of us are football players, so our gray hair, right? Alan Page was a, uh, he was a member of what was called the Purple People Eaters. Does that ring any bells for any others? Yeah. So this was the uh, defensive line for the Minnesota Vikings back in the 70s. This was a team that went to the Super Bowl four times, lost the Super Bowl every one of those times, but they were a great NFL team, and he was the first, I think, defensive player to win NFL MVP before Lawrence Taylor or anybody else. He was the original, like, great defensive lineman. Um, and he came, he had just run for uh, Supreme Court in Minnesota, and he came, and he's speaking, and it's the same night that Michigan's Fab Five team is playing the Kentucky Wildcats uh, in the, uh, I don't know if it was Elite Eight or Sweet 16, it wasn't quite a Final Four game, but it was that same night, and I'm just asking this guy question after question, the room is going crazy because everyone wants to get out of there and watch the game. <laughs> Um, but I fell in love with this man, Alan Page, and ultimately was privileged to be able to go to Minnesota for a year and clerk for him. Um, it's a serendipitous story around how to get there, but I, I want to spend a moment just talking about Alan Page for two reasons. One is, he spent that night talking to an audience of legal scholars, and you can imagine who the professors at the University of Michigan Law School are, right? Um, they're not interested in practice, like they are scholars of the law. Uh, and he spent a night talking to all of us about the importance of community service, right? And the work that he was doing with third graders in Minneapolis, teaching them how to read and so on and so forth. Um, just like fantastic man. And then went to Minnesota and had a chance to work for him and learned how to write finally, because um, judges do that. They make you write and edit your writing. Um, and he said, and, and learned also while I was there, uh, a whole different lesson around race, or at least had it kind of articulated and click for me. We were, um, as, a, as, a, as a clerk for a judge, you actually write their opinions, you draft their opinions. Um, and then they edit them and so on and so forth. And so I got to draft the judge's opinions on two big issues around race. One was around a case uh, where an anonymous jury had been impaneled. So typically as a juror, when, you're, when you sit on a jury, like, they, people know who you are. But in this case, because the defendant was so dangerous, folks, like, it was an anonymous jury. We didn't know who you were, right? And the argument was that, that just the fact that you were anonymous as a juror told you this defendant was so dangerous that you'd want to put him in jail. So it didn't matter whether he was guilty or not. You were going to send him away regardless, right? Because he was that dangerous a person. Um, and then a second case, and he was black, the defendant. Second case was around a young white defendant, young man, uh, who'd committed a crime and was sentenced as a juvenile. Um, and the state was actually arguing that he should have been sentenced as, a, as an adult. Um, and so in essence, if I can just cut to the chase, this case was about kind of discrimination in what we would think of as its classic form, 
And this case was about what we might today call white privilege, right? This young person who had committed a very similar crime to another young person, African-American, sentenced as an adult, this young person sentenced as a juvenile. Here, black defendant impaneled, you know, after a lot of white defendants had not had anonymous juries, this black defendant gets an anonymous jury. We actually affirmed the decision here and said the anonymous jury was actually appropriate in this case. Uh, and in a dissent, we actually said that this case was inappropriately handled, that this juvenile should have been sentenced as an adult based on what was happening in all other similarly situated cases. It's fascinating, right? So we decided against the black uh, defendant here and against the white defendant here, just to be clear. It was really, for me, one of the first times that I thought about the distinction between discrimination in its classic form and white privilege, like as this whole other thing. And our, like what, so just thinking about those two was fascinating, so we can talk a little bit more about that later. So anyway, clerk for Justice Page, came back to Detroit, worked, went, I, I went to law school on what I called the Thurgood Marshall Plan. I was gonna change the world through high impact class action litigation, litigate the next Brown v. Board, right? I was that kid in Robinson desegregating a school district, and by golly, we were gonna fix all that, whatever that was. Um, went to the firm that had the class action portfolio, sat in a windowless office like this room, but about one one hundredth the size, um, and wondered why I pulled, why I got a headache every day when I pulled in the parking structure, and I'm talking to a, a neural orthopedist or orthopedic surgeon, some some brain eye specialist at some point, who's in my eye. <laughs> And he says to me, you know, what's, you know what's wrong with you? And I was like, no, what? You're going to tell me. Like, I have a tumor or something. He says, you need a new job. <laughs> I hated being an attorney, as it turned out. Uh, I was a litigator, uh, and I was OK at it, but I just hated it. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't the difference I wanted to make in the world. Um, and so I left the law firm. I co-founded this organization called Think Detroit with this amazing guy going to high school and law school with named Mike Tenbush. Uh, we ultimately merged it with the Detroit Police Athletic League, and quick story about that. I had volunteered for Pell a couple of years before as a young attorney, um, really disappointed with the quality of the programs, had volunteered to fix it, had never gotten phone calls back, finally said, I'm going to start my own organization, screw you guys. We started Think Detroit, um, and that was a journey, more on that in a moment, and then years later, merged with Pell, right, effectively taking them over. Um, kind of full circle. So uh, I won't even tell you the story of, of kind of founding Think Detroit, um, except to say that it was a labor of love. Uh, no money, um, just no anything, no office. No, we, we found a basement uh, in, the, in, the, in a church and kind of started the organization there, served 120 kids through youth development, uh, youth sports and leadership development. Baseball the first summer, 119 of the 120 had never played baseball before. Uh, we literally went O for the season, and it was the most miraculous summer of my life. It was incredible. Uh, and I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, right? That was the kind of difference that I wanted to make. Um, and so I left the practice of law, went and worked at Think Detroit full time. Um, after a while, I uh, wanted to figure out how the money worked in this system, and so I went to the Kellogg Foundation for about a year and a half. Kellogg, based in Battle Creek, Michigan, was close enough to Detroit to see the smoke, but too far away to fight the fire. Uh, and so I left after a year and a half, back to Detroit, and led Excellent Schools Detroit. Uh, Excellent Schools Detroit was this organization created by a coalition. And that coalition really wanted to fix public education in Detroit, charter and traditional schools. And you all have read all that stuff uh, you know, over the last few years. It's been uh, one heck of a journey. 
Um, long story short, over, after five years, that culminated in this huge legislative fight. Last year, uh, up in Lansing, I actually am registered as a lobbyist. Everybody at our organization is all in on getting uh, three things done through some legislation. We get the mayor recruited to do that work. And I should tell you this story. I'd been sending the, the mayor letters um, week after week, month after month, and meeting with folks on his team to get him involved in this. And what no mayor in their right mind wants to touch education in, in Detroit. Like, you're not responsible for it, and it's a third rail, and it's a hot mess. Like, why would you ever want to take responsibility for that, right? Any Detroiters in the room? Yeah, so you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Um, so the mayor's avoiding me, and his staff is, like, shielding him. They're like, oh, we'll give this to the mayor, you know, and they don't. Um, and after a while, I figured that out, and I'm at a silent auction for a nonprofit, and uh, one of the auction items is lunch with the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and $400 later, I won lunch with the mayor. Uh, and so I have lunch with the mayor, and I slide this letter across the table to him and have him read it at lunch. And um, that doesn't actually tip him over, but he starts off talking about uh, a colleague in the work in Detroit and how much he enjoys her and thinks she's a great leader. And so I left the lunch and called her and said, you've got to do, you know, reinforce this letter, so on and so forth. And one thing they do, another we got him. Long story short, we get up to Lansing. We went on two of the three big issues. I don't love the mayor is working our third issue. I wanted to do it a slightly different way, but it is what it is. And we lost on the third issue, right? Um, and I'll, I won't, bore, won't suffer you the story. Uh, except to say um, that there were very powerful interests um, led by a family member of the person for whom this building is named. Um, and, uh, and we lost. Um, and that's what happens in politics uh, and sports, right? Sometimes you lose. Um, and then you got to try again at some point down the road. Um, so that's where we found ourselves. Uh, and after that, the other lesson I learned at Excellent Schools Detroit really quickly is that it's a relay, not a, not a sprint and not a marathon. So you don't run the whole leg of the race yourself. You know that quote from Dr. King about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice? Like that, somebody said to me that arc is so long that it's, it's, a re, it's, a, it's not a marathon, it is a relay. You can't run it all yourself. Your job is to run your leg really well and pass the baton to the next folks who will lead that charge. And so I passed the baton at Excellent Schools Detroit and was privileged to land at Goodwill. So really quickly, so that's the story. Like that's, and that brings me here today. I've been at Goodwill for 11 months. Let me tell you really quickly about Goodwill, because most folks don't know a thing about Goodwill, and I can't stand in front of a room full of folks and not tell you a little bit about this amazing organization. This is just kind of how most Goodwills work. This is our description of it in Detroit. By the way, Goodwills have physical boundaries, so I am not pitching Goodwill Detroit. I'm actually going to pitch you on Goodwill Grand Rapids in just a moment. Um, <laughs> folks with employment barriers show up uh, at our doors through various mechanisms. Those barriers you know, take all sorts of forms. Um, and they enter programs designed to help them with those barriers. We supplement with a little bit of grant money. And we help folks find permanent employment and so enter the world of work. And that's not about the job. It's about what the job gives you, right? Financial security, independence, self-esteem, dignity unlocking for you your ability to make contributions that you want to make to your church, your family, your kids, whatever it is, right? You don't, you don't make those contributions until you achieve financial security, independence, and self-esteem and dignity. Some folks need a little more help. So they continue along, and we give them what's called transitional work experience opportunities. It's where they actually work for us. Goodwills, unlike most other organizations, run businesses. 
Um, in Detroit, we happen to run three. In Grand Rapids, I'm not even sure how many it is. Kathy Crosby's somewhere in the room who leads Goodwill Grand Rapids. There she is. Um, uh, so I'm not sure how many businesses it is here in Grand Rapids, but folks get transitional work experience and then transition into permanent employment or sometimes transition into permanent employment with us, achieving those good outcomes. And if we run the businesses well, we generate revenue, which goes right back into our work, right, helping to fund it, so we're not overly dependent upon philanthropy. So here's the pitch. Every goodwill is geographically bounded. You guys live, work, and play in the boundary that is supported by Goodwill Industries of Grand Rapids. This is the information for Goodwill Industries of Grand Rapids. That's the website, and that's the phone number. Call. Go to the website, go to the stores, make donations, do good. All right, that's it. Okay, so based on that story, like what do I know about leadership? Here's my, here's my thought. So I wanna talk about the process of leadership first, my thoughts about the process of leadership. I wanna talk second about kind of passion and energy. Um, Third, about how to sustain that. And then lastly, just a few other lessons. So four things. So first, the process. So really simple. There's a current state. There's this other thing that you think is possible, right? And the only way to get from the current state to this other thing that you think is possible is relationship with and interaction with others. And by the way, if there's like one takeaway from this whole thing, one theme that knits it all together, is that leadership only happens in the context of relationship. And like we all know that and we all forget it all the time, right? All the time. I would argue that our president has forgotten that, like right now, right? It only happens in relationship with and interaction with others. Now what does that mean? Like what, what's happening in that? So this is what leadership is, right? It's, and like what's happening in here is really the question. So here's what I think is happening in there. Here's how it works for me in all those experiences that I just described. You're interacting with others, and you encounter either resistance or enrollment. There's some idea that you're pitching. There's this thing. There's this uh, professor at Harvard who talks about leadership really as being about the distribution of loss. Like, leadership matters. When you're distributing wins, well, it's easy. Everybody gets a win, right? Let me pass those out. Anybody resistant to that? No. Like, everyone wins, right? It's when you're distributing wins and losses that people are like, wait a minute, I don't want that loss. Right? That's when leadership really matters. And so you encounter resistance to that, or people are like, okay, yeah, I see the big picture you're talking about, I'll take a loss on this one in order to get to this bigger win, whatever that is. Resistance or enrollment. Why is this happening? So sometimes it's them, right? There's this whole other person who's got say in the matter, but sometimes it's you. And it's this understanding of who and how we are being that matters. That's the, now, like, why am I focusing on that? Because to the extent that you're getting resistance or enrollment based on them, there's nothing you can do about it. If that's their baggage, there's nothing you can do about their baggage. If that's their, like, yeah, I want to do that, like, then, and you don't have anything, like, that's, there's nothing you can do about that. What you have control over as a leader is who you are being and how you are being it in the context of this relationship, right? Am I listening? Am I being supportive? Am I being understanding? Am I getting the loss that I'm actually asking them to take? Right? Like all of that, and how am I being that? Like how am I being, like who am I being in this context? 
with you? Am I being related to you? Or am I not paying enough attention to you because I'm keeping my eye on this big prize, right? Like, who you're being and how you're being, it matters. For me, anyway, that's what I found. And I go back to here, and I try and check myself. I change who or how I'm being, get back into a relationship with folks, and try again. And it just goes over and over and over again. And that's what leadership is, for me, in a nutshell. Like, that's the process that I'm following, and that's the process I would argue that most people are following, whether they realize it or not, in the context of trying to lead, trying to be a leader. Okay, what's that mean? So this is Gandhi's quote, Gandhi, great leader and flawed human being, right? So this isn't about Gandhi at the moment, it's about the quote. As human beings, our greatness lies not so much in being able to remake the world, that is the myth of the atomic age, as in being able to remake ourselves. And when you think about what he did, right? He had no control over what the British Empire was doing. He had control over who he was and how he was being in relationship to the British Empire. And over and over and over again, over decades, right? He adapted himself got back into relationship with them or with other folks in India and tried again and again and again, whether it was the march to the sea over and over again, right? whatever it was that he was doing, it was that process over and over and over again. And what he's saying is that you can remake the world, but your greatness doesn't lie there. Your greatness lies in being able to remake yourself. That, I love that quote. All right, so that's the process. Second, passion. Like, what does it mean to find your passion? So as a leader, people talk about, you gotta, you gotta find your passion, right? You gotta know what you're, what you're going after. Um, so two thoughts here. One is, um, <laughs> there are kind of two schools of thought here. Um, and I don't mean to be dismissive of the first, but I'm gonna be a little dismissive of the first, uh, which cuts against things I'm gonna tell you later. So this is me not being my best version of myself, right? I need to adapt and like, right, remake who I'm being in this context. But um, so one version is go find yourself, right? Like go find, and I don't, I don't even know what that means, go find yourself. And don't get me wrong, I'm into yoga, I go to retreats, I read, I'm like, I'm as, Tree huggy is anybody you've ever met, right? Maybe not anybody, but most people. And still, I don't know anybody who's found their passion that way. Like, it's a great way to relax. It's a great way to recharge. It's a great way to like, reconnect with energy, like your energy sources. But I don't think you figure out the difference you want to make in the world through that mechanism. I think the way you figure out the difference you want to make in the world, and so young people, like 20-somethings who are figuring it out, I don't think you find it, I think you create it. I think you create it. That means go try stuff, right? Try and fail, try and succeed, try and half succeed or half fail, whatever. The point is in trying things, you'll find what you love. Like, and in finding what you love, like that, so it was only in, if I had tried to find this Think Detroit thing that Mike Tembush and I co-founded, like I never would have found it. 
It was in getting frustrated with Pal and in creating this other organization that was designed to serve 120 kids that I was like, oh my God, that's the difference I want to make in the world, right? You just create it. And there's nothing, there's nothing crazy about it. So second thing, you, like we're not looking for heroes. You're not starting off trying to be a Gandhi or a Dr. King or any, like you're not trying to do anything world changing. You're just trying to change this thing, this one thing right in front of you. And it's amazing where that can take you sometimes, right? Maybe from starting this nonprofit organization to standing in Lowenstein Hall, Lowenstein? Loosemore, Loosemore Hall at the Howenstein Center talking to a room full of folks about like your journey and leadership and so on. So I just really believe in, in, in finding this thing, finding this thing that you wanna make a difference around, it's not, like you're not gonna find it in books. You're gonna find it in action. Like get in action, just go try. Go mentor, go coach, go, what, go teach, go whatever, just go try. And in the process of trying, like in the process of living, you'll find that difference that you wanna make in the world. So that's a little bit about my experience around creating passion um, and finding my passion. Start small, 120 kids, it now serves 13,000. Like never saw that coming. That first year it was 120 kids. We just wanna serve 120 kids. Right? Later on, we're serving 13,000, and then, then like big pictures start to emerge later. Just start small and try. Second thing, or do, don't try, do, right? All right, sustaining yourself. Third thing, um, so two lessons that I wanna share with you here. One is around committing to your two personal values. So finding and committing to personal values. There's this, there's this literature about, thank you, there's this literature about, um, uh, employee engagement and like where, like, like what employees are engaged and what employees aren't and why and what difference like does it make in the world and how can you help those employees get engaged if you're running an organization or what have you. And here's the really fascinating thing about this. This is really interesting. So it's not, it's not clarity, so there's this matrix, right? So like clarity about organizational values, clarity about uh, your personal values. Um, and like, it's not clarity about organizational values that has you engaged at work. It's clarity about your own. You're much happier, you're much more engaged, you're much more productive if it's not about finding an organization that's the perfect fit, like it's not their values that matter, it's yours. Do you even know what they are, right? So I will tell you, I'm 48 now. Um, and I didn't figure this out right away, but I now have seven core values that guide me uh, daily in the work that I do. I am curious, I'm open-minded, I'm grateful, and I'm loving. I'm in action, I am a contribution, and I have integrity, I have probity. That seventh means like I act in ways that are consistent with the other six all the time. Those are on my mirror, in the bathroom, I try and live one every day, I reflect at the end of each day when I'm br so brushing my teeth, two minutes in the morning, which value is it to this value? Two minutes at the end of the day, brushing my teeth, how'd I do on that value, right? Like just that four minutes of reflection every day, incredible leadership lessons while brushing my teeth. <laughs> All right, second thing around sustaining yourself, uh, energy. And here specifically, so this, uh, sorry, cheesy graphic. Uh, pay no attention to the graphic <laughs> on my chest. Um, the, the lesson here is around the power of pairs. Um, 
It's been a fascinating journey for me. Uh, probably the time in my professional career where I had the most energy as a leader was in leading Think Detroit, that nonprofit that we founded, the 120 kids, and grew it to 13,000. And why is that? It's because I was paired with a guy, Mike Tenbush, who I'd gone to high school and law school with, who was a dear friend, so on and so forth. And when he was tired, I was high. And when I was tired, he was high. And like we were able to balance each other out in amazing ways. And the power of paired leadership in that context, um, in other contexts, I think is incredible. And for me, anyway, it has been probably the most profound thing I have learned about myself and energy in the context of leadership. When I'm leading alone or feel like I'm leading alone, I get tired. We all do, right? It's when you have a partner in leadership, and I would argue that when you have a team, like that gets tiring too because you're trying to manage team dynamics. One person, like there's this amazing thing that happens when you're paired with the right person that just is incredible, just incredible. Um, and so I always encourage folks, if you're starting an organization, like find a partner. Um, whatever that is, just find a partner who you click with and go make that happen and you will find that it sustains your energy much more effectively than if it doesn't. Um, quick story about Mike Tembush and I. We, uh, oh, this is an awful story about Detroit. So this is not Detroit, I want you to know. What you read in the papers is true and it's this much of this big a story about Detroit. Like we've had this horrible rap for a lot of years. It's my town, love that city, love the people. Like it's an amazing place and if you haven't been, time to come. Come see us, right? Um, and we were starting this, pro this program and this organization in one of the worst areas of the city, then called the Cass Corridor, now affectionately known as Midtown. Um, and uh, we were walking the Cass Corridor uh, to one of the handful of businesses in the Cass Corridor, which was the red light district at the time, looking for businesses to sponsor the program. And uh, <laughs> on more than one occasion, we were propositioned by prostitutes in the Cass Corridor, walking the street, trying to find businesses to support this league. Like, that's the kind of environment that we were in. You know, like, it was, it was, it was rough. It was awful. And would never have happened, never have happened, had we not found the power of paired leadership. Um, all right, one last thing, and then we can just talk a little bit. Uh, other lessons on the journey. Um, so three. One is be smart with your strengths. So I'm a big fan of personality types. Do you guys know your personality? Like your Myers-Briggs personality, Netflix and all that? Yeah, and some, like, some people are like, oh, that's meaningful. Some people are like, ah, that's just all you know, bogus. Whatever, it works for me, right? Most important, does it work for you? Great, if it doesn't, then find something else that works for you. It works for me. In that context, like I know my strengths. I'm an INTJ, right? So rational, like logical, whatever, and sometimes a jerk, because INTJs can kind of sometimes be jerks. And so if you are like too reliant on, like, so you gotta know that you're a jerk. Like, and that's a strength at times, but it's like played too hard, it's an you know, awful weakness. Chases everybody out of the room, all right? You gotta figure out how to be smart with your strengths. It's not your weaknesses that'll kill you. It's like your strengths overplayed that kill you as a leader. Um, so recognize your strengths as potential weaknesses, um, the same way that, at least uh, that's been my experience. Second. Be humble. So a quick pie chart. This little yellow slice is what you know that you know in the world, right? Anybody know what this is? What you know you don't know, right, exactly. And then what's all this? What you don't know you don't know, right? Most of the world is stuff that you don't know. 
Most of the world is stuff I don't know. And I don't even know I don't know it. <laughs> right? Like, whoa. <laughs> what is that? What did this guy just say? Right. So I know, I know, I don't know, public speaking. I can speak to an audience, right? I got that. I know that. I know I don't know rocket science. I couldn't put an astronaut on the moon to save my life, right? I know I don't know how to do that. There's a whole world of stuff I don't know, and I don't even know enough to know that I don't know it. And that's the stuff that kills you too, right? So one is overplaying your strength. The second is this other stuff. So like, I knew some politics. I didn't know other politics. And then there was a whole world of politics I knew nothing about and didn't even know I didn't know anything about it, right? And that's one of the reasons we lost. Like, I didn't know that whole world of politics. So you got to be humble. you got to know that there's all this stuff out there. And if you know it, then you start to ask about it. All right? And you can start to shrink that pie a little bit. Or you can start to recruit allies who do know this stuff, or whatever it is. And in the world of leadership, this is the stuff that gets you in trouble when you're pushing for something really hard. Third thing um, is be unreasonable. So last thought here. Uh, We've all got reasons that we don't do things. Like, there are hard things to do. Um, oh, so I'll give an example. Um, was asked to come here and speak uh, to a room full of folks today. Uh, and um, it wasn't a particularly convenient day to do it, right? And so there was like a reason not to do it. There was a reason to say no, right? And it's only in being unreasonable with oneself that you end up across the state talking to a room full of folks about your leadership lessons and sharing your story about Goodwill or about Excellent Schools Detroit or whatever it is. Like, you have to be unreasonable with yourself. You gotta talk yourself out of the reasons that you have for not doing whatever it is. And every one of you right now is sitting on some idea that you've had forever, like something you wanted to do, but there are reasons that you haven't done it. And I'm here to tell you, like, whatever. Get over your reasons. Like, let them go. <laughs> and be unreasonable with yourself and try, because it's only in trying the stuff that you find your passion, right? And then you get busy changing the world or changing your family or whatever it is, changing your part of the world and making the kind of difference in the world that you want to make. Um, that has been my story and my journey uh, for these 48 years. Uh, last thing I will tell you is that I'm still learning every day. Um, I reflected long and hard about like what I learned out of the ESD thing and the loss up at the state legislature. and you know what, what about the traditional district and charter environment in Detroit works and what doesn't work? And you know, what are my takeaways from trying to lead that coalition? And what did I do well and what did I do poorly? And like, I, you know, still figuring that out. Still figuring that out uh, at 48. And I'm sure I'll still be figuring it out at 78 and 88, God willing. Um, that's just the nature of life and the nature of this journey that we're on. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to be with you, and that concludes my remarks, but happy to take questions or comments or thoughts, like just have a conversation with you um, going forward. Thanks. That was Dan Varner. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. 
Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.